Our passage this morning is Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The word of the Lord. Thank you.
Well, as we conclude our series on Ruth, I invite you please uh, first to join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that, as, as Brent already reminded us, that as, even though our, our lives, um, our world can feel like it's constantly changing, uh, you do not, and your faithfulness does not, and your love does not. And we pray that you would help us even now um, to allow this truth to be an anchor to our souls. We ask that now as we hear your word, you would give us insight, you would give us wisdom, you would help us to see you more clearly, that we might trust in you more fully and love you more deeply. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I, um, I saw a statistic uh, that said that a typical person these days on a typical day sees around 5,000 ads. When you add all of the logos that we see, the billboards, everything, 5,000 ads. I don't know if that's true, that sounds a little bit high to me, but um, I think we probably can all agree that we are probably the most advertised people ever. Um, we're constantly being barraged by advertisements. It's every moment of the day, which I think actually has an effect on us. We've, we've learned to be a little bit more skeptical when we're experiencing claim after claim after claim. Whenever something sounds good, we look for the fine print. We, when we see claims or promises, we ask, what's the catch? This is probably too good to be true, right? That's, that's just kind of our instinct. And I think that actually translates to how we experience a lot of things, not just advertising. So, so consider for a moment uh, these words from Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. There, there are promises being made, right, that if we trust in God, if we delight in Him, He will give the desires of our heart. If we commit our way to the Lord, He will act. And if you are typical for our day, probably at least a part of you is asking, what's the catch? What's the fine print to that? Because that's, that's how our minds, I think, are programmed. And, and part of it, if we're honest, is... Well, it's hard for us sometimes to believe that God actually is acting. Yes, we understand perhaps that, there, that he acts in big ways, like when he brings his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, when he raises his son from the dead. But if we're honest, we have a harder time believing that God acts in our time. It's, it's hard for us to see, you know, like on a typical Tuesdays when we're maybe fixing something or maybe we're working on a spreadsheet that God is somehow there acting or when we get in some sort of argument with our kid, God is right there. It's hard for us in just the humdrum nature of suburbia to say, yep, there's God. And so we have a hard time holding on to this. It doesn't feel right. And, and even more when it says God will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, where, what, what's the fine print on that? Because we, we feel the reality that we have many desires that are currently unmet. And so we hear these promises, and, and a part of us has a hard time really trusting them. We think there's probably, in the literal Hebrew, it probably means something different, or there's something going on here. And, and what I want to say is actually, I think the book of Ruth invites us to look again. 
Um, it, it suggests that, that really, if we have only the eyes to see, we will see God acting everywhere. And if we have a hard time believing that God will give us the desires of our heart, that's only because our perspective is not yet big enough. Our, our, our vision is not yet patient enough to see how God works on his own timing. Because if you think about it, Ruth is all about the humdrum, right? This is, this is a book that takes place over the course of a few months in a very ordinary small town with very ordinary people. These three people, there's nothing extraordinary about really any of them. And the stuff that they're encountering is very ordinary. And yet, we see by the end of this that throughout, God has been pervasive, involved in these ordinary details, doing something absolutely extraordinary. And we are being invited, as we see this, to look again at our own lives and see differently how God acts and how God is faithful. And, and in some ways, we see this perhaps most clearly as we, we draw things to an end, chapter four of Ruth, which really is kind of like the happily ever after chapter. There are three characters we've said, and each one experience a, a happy resolution. We, we, we find ourselves working through this chapter going in reverse order from when they first appeared. So Boaz was the last of the three characters to appear, and now Boaz, we first see his story be resolved. It's probably the most complicated of these three stories because uh, it involves stuff like um, uh, elders sitting at the gate, and kinsmen redeemers, and, and sandals being exchanged, and it feels really very kind of foreign to us, right? But really at the heart of this first, you know, dozen verses is a decision between whether or not to choose the thing that seems to be in your own best interest and choosing what is good and faithful in the eyes of God. And the decision all hangs on this idea of the kinsman redeemer. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. The, the law of the kinsman redeemer that God appointed in his scriptures is basically saying that if your family member falls into hard times and you have the ability to help, you must. So if your family member goes into poverty and they have to sell their land, their only means of livelihood, if you are able, you need to buy it back. And if your family member, if, if a widow, a woman, her husband dies without an heir, then if it is in your ability, your responsibility is to marry this woman so that an heir can be appointed and that person's line, that person's legacy can continue. This was God's way of protecting families against systemic poverty, the way that they would continue to care for each other and keep everything in their own, um, in their own names. But, but this, this plan doesn't come without a cost. Yes, there's a cost for buying back land, but also in that day, Legacy mattered so much. I mean, maybe sometimes we think in terms of legacy, if we step back and think of our lives and we wonder, what will I be remembered for? That question was central to people's lives. They wanted their names to be remembered. They wanted to have an heir and their line to continue. And the problem was, if you are a kinsman redeemer and you married the widow, the first child that was born to you would carry on the line the name of the man who had died. Which means if that's your only son, your name ends up kind of getting forgotten and the other person's name continues and you risk your own legacy because you're caring for someone else. And, and it's this weighing up 
faithfulness and being good versus protecting your own legacy that, that lies at the very heart of this opening story. You might remember at the end of chapter three, Boaz, as, as Ruth has very forwardly basically invited Boaz, could you please redeem me? Could you please marry me? This is what we need. And Boaz says, I would like to, but I can't yet because there's a family member that is closer to you than I. And it's his responsibility. And for me to be faithful to God, I need to defer to this person. And so when Ruth goes back to Naomi and Naomi says, wait, at the same time it says, at the same time Boaz is immediately going to the gate. So it's early in the morning and he is waiting for that kinsman redeemer, that closer family member, because everyone goes through the gate so he knows that's where he'll find them. And as he comes to the gate, he says, please come aside, let's, let's talk. And, and the person comes aside and then he takes the, the 10, first 10 men who are like elders of the town, come on, I need witnesses because this is gonna be official interaction. And he, and he says to this other relative, he says, um, there's a, a need for a kinsman redeemer. You might know Naomi's land is needing to be bought and, and you are the one who has the responsibility for it. Will you do it? And the man thinking, hey, I like the idea of buying this land. That will be more inheritance for my children. Says, yes. And then Boaz says, but you do remember, of course, that there is also Ruth which means you will need to marry Ruth so that there can be an ongoing heir for Elimelech, the, the, the father of Malin, the, the person whose line needs to be continued so that his name and memory is not forgotten. And suddenly this man who was eager to do something that seemed like a good idea pauses because he realizes now this has a cost. Will he be the kinsman redeemer and, and be obedient and faithful and risk losing his line or will he do what is in his own self-interest? And we see what he responds. He says, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Now, he could. He, he, when he's saying he cannot, he's really saying I will not. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption. You do it. So he has this decision, and we see what he means. And it tells us something about what Boaz is doing here, right? Because the same cost, the same danger, the same fear that caused this other guy to decide, I don't want to do it, is something that Boaz has to weigh up. When Boaz is saying to Ruth, I will, I will redeem you, I will take you, he is saying, I am willing to risk my own line, my own heritage, to be able to do what I know is right. And the question maybe we should be asking is why? Why is Boaz willing to do this? Now, if this were a Hollywood movie, I can just imagine the answer it would supply. I can imagine the trailer, you know, the story of a man willing to give up everything to keep one woman that he loves. You know, like that's the kind of thing. It would be the drama. But if you actually look at this, that's, that's not the reason that he gives. Um, you know, you are witnesses this day uh, that I have bought the land and also Ruth the Moabite I have bought to be my wife. Why? Because I love her so much. No, that's not what he says. He says, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. This is not the language of rom-coms. Like, I cannot imagine this happening in like when Harry met Sally. This is not romantic language. I'm not saying that, that Boaz doesn't love but it's not the love of romance that's being spoken of. It's, it's the love of faithfulness. He, he is choosing to do something that is at cost to himself because he knows it is good. Because he seeks to be faithful to God. Because he wants to entrust himself to God no matter what that means. And that means in this situation risking his own legacy. You know, it's... Uh, 
My, my favorite detail about this, to understand exactly what's going on in this, this passage, uh, actually happens in the first verse, and uh, most translations, it's hard for us to pick it up. You notice how it says, turn aside, friend, sit down here at the very beginning. It's because translations have no idea what to do with the Hebrew. There's these nonsense words. When Boaz says, turn aside, pony almoni, and no one knows what pony almoni is because it's just nonsense. And, and almost every commentator says, here's what's going on. So um, my mom, if she doesn't remember the name of someone, she'll say, Mr. Huzihami. Um, and, and, and maybe sometimes you can like hear, like sometimes, oh, Mr. So-and-so. Well, actually, a couple of translators, I think rightly translate, come over here, Mr. So-and-so. Now, the point of this is not Ruth is saying, uh, the book of Ruth is saying, Boaz had a really bad memory. I mean, this is a small town. This was a relative. He knew this guy's name. It's that the writer of Ruth doesn't. I mean, this is a few generations later. No one remembers who this guy is. And that's actually significant, isn't it? Because this man was so intent on preserving his line, preserving his memory, and now who is he? He's Mr. So-and-so. He's a footnote in history that no one knows the name of. Meanwhile, Boaz, Boaz is willing to risk his line, and it's 3,000 years later, and the whole world knows his name. He, he loved what was good. He befriended faithfulness. He entrusted himself to God, and God gave him the desires of his heart. It's interesting if you think about it. He doesn't even know that, right? By the time he's dead, he doesn't know what's going to happen to his legacy, but we do. We see in his life, in what God does for him, God's faithfulness. And he walks off the stage. His, his story is resolved. So then, then we get to Ruth. If you think about it, actually, uh, the, this, this moment where you have two different people contrasting each other between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, Ruth has kind of had a moment like that back in chapter one, right? There was a similar time where, where she and her Mr. So-and-so were Orpah, two people who both have this decision. Am I going to choose faithfulness or am I going to choose what makes sense to me? And Orpah, we know what she has done. She ends up leaving and deciding to go home. And Ruth, we know what she does. Where you go, I go, Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And in case we miss the significance of what Ruth has done, in chapter 2, Boaz speaks to Ruth and speaks of how you have entrusted yourself under God's wings. She has placed her trust in God. And, and as our passage resolves the story in just a single verse, we see what that means for her. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That one sentence contains an enormous story, if you think about it. I mean, we can just imagine that moment after Boaz has had this conversation at the gate, walking to Ruth and Naomi's home, and coming in and, and saying what happened, and suddenly Naomi's like covering her face in tears because she sees what's happened. Meanwhile, Boaz and Ruth kind of are shyly looking at each other across the room. And then we can imagine not too long after the beauty of, of the wedding and the joy of the wedding and the wedding night. And then, and then a few months later, Ruth, to her just overwhelming delight, experiencing for the first time ever a baby kicking within her. And then a few months later, after pain and exhaustion, the ecstasy of the baby being born, it's a boy and, and what, what's significant especially is how this whole story is framed. Do you notice what it said? 
It says, and the Lord gave her a conception and she bore a son. You know, the, the whole book of Ruth is filled with God. I mean, God is, is there in every detail, but it's always subtly hinted at. It only takes a careful reading to recognize what it's telling us about God except for here. This is the one moment in the whole book where it's like the curtain is pulled back and, and the writer tells us plainly, God acts. God gave her conception. It was God that allowed her to become pregnant and, and formed the baby inside Ruth's womb, which by implication means it's God was the one who first allowed Ruth and Boaz to come together and be married. God was the one who, who navigated every detail to get here. God acted. If, if we want to see a, a, a demonstration of 37 verse 5 of Psalm, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Here we have it. She committed her way to the Lord. She trusted in him, and what has God done? He has acted, and he also has granted the desire of her heart. And with that, her story moves off the stage. And then we finally come to Naomi. Naomi, really, who's been at the center of the book of Ruth from the very beginning. Um, verse 14, we find her back with the women. Do you remember the women? The last time we saw Naomi speaking with the women, it was when she was first in chapter 1 coming back. And, and she came with bitterness. In fact, she said, my name's not Naomi anymore. I've lost that name. That means pleasant. My name's Mara. And, and essentially almost curses God. The Lord is against me. And, and now we come to to the end. But, but one other thing is true about the very beginning. She, even though she's coming brokenhearted, even though she's coming doubting, she is coming. She, she is entering in the land. If you remember Psalm 37, one of the things it says, trust in the Lord, dwell in the land. And that's what she's doing. She is, she is dwelling in the land in just the smallest way. This is a, a mustard seed of faith. It is the bare glimmer of hope that maybe God might do something is, is what she expresses as she returns in chapter one. And the rest of the book shows us what happens, of how God responds to that weak faith by, by bringing Ruth to Boaz, by protecting Naomi's forwardness in chapter three, by, by protecting Ruth and Boaz. And now, as chapter four, we see the reversal complete. She said, I went away empty, and now she has a baby in her arms. She, she comes in chapter one, cursing God, and now the baby's name is Obed, meaning worship. She comes in chapter one, having lost her name, and now what do we see? We see the women praying, may his name be renowned in Israel. She has her name back. And it continues, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I think that's beautiful, isn't it? He, he shall be to you a restorer of life. I think the idea is, is that now this will give you joy, this will give you vitality. We can just imagine as, as Obed is crying in the middle of the night, she's the one who's willing to wake up and hold him and, and, and snuggle him back to sleep. She'll play peekaboo with him to kind of cheer him up. She will help him to take his initial steps and she will have joy in this. It's a restorer of life. And then also a nourisher of your old 